Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you're brand new, you're picking up in the middle of a series, a long series with several breaks along the way, sometimes a long break and sometimes a short break. But nevertheless, here we are now to the part of Colossians that really gets to the nitty-gritty. Colossians 3, 18 and 19 deal with marriage. But I want us to remember how we got there. I'm going to keep stressing that through these practical parts of Colossians 3. You might remember a while back, we talked about how there had been a lot of theory in Colossians 1. A lot of theology about Christ and who he is and what he did, what he's doing, what's ours now in the new covenant. And I said, you're probably itching for a a real good to-do message about now. And I said, I understand, and yet that instinct in us might not be right. It, It might be because we love law better than we love grace, more than we love Christ sometimes. And so so I don't want us to forget, as we talk about marriage today, how we got there. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to see these two verses in Colossians 3, 18 and 19. We're going to focus on them, but after we read them, we're going to zoom out, and we're going to see the big picture of marriage. We're going to go to the background of marriage in Genesis, and then we'll zoom back into the book of Colossians as a whole, stop there for a bit with that size picture, that size lens, and then we'll finally get back to these verses, 18 and 19 of Colossians 3, to zoom in. So think of this like a a Google Earth exercise. You ever done that? Where you're in New York City and you're looking there at Central Park, and man, you could... You could see a person. You could, you could spot a guy if you knew him. And, and then if you decide you're going to Albuquerque next, it zooms out real big and goes over to the west and lands there. And so we're going to zoom out and zoom in today. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Here's where we zoom in. And it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not Be harsh with them. All right, there, we zoomed in. Now let's zoom out to the the book of Genesis. Do some background and see God's plan for marriage. Would you turn to Genesis 2? Let's just remind ourselves of how this thing of marriage began and why Paul is even writing as he is to the Colossians about what their marriage should look like. Genesis 2, start in verse 20. We'll read five or six verses here. Here's God's plan for marriage. It says, The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. Adam is categorizing these animals. He's looking for a helper. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This one doesn't talk. This one smells. This one can plow, but... He's looking for something else. And so, verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken away from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, this is the first marriage, the first marriage before sin. And we see that they're made for each other. We see that they were made to complement each other. They're not made the same. Adam needs a helper, which shows his own shortcoming in a sense, right? He needs a helper. It's not good for a man to be alone. If you have a son that's in his mid-20s and he's single, you know it's not good for a man to be alone. He needs a helper. He needs someone along his side. And these, these two first people God created are to hold fast to each other, it said in verse 23. They're to cleave to each other, so much so that they eventually, verse 24, are to become one flesh. There's a cleaving of soul and life, identity, personhood. And it's even represented in this one flesh physicality. God's given them a gift in sex. This is God's plan for marriage, but we also need to think quickly about the problem of sin in marriage. So just turn the page over to Genesis 3, and we'll start looking at some verses here. What happens to this marriage when sin comes into this world? Well, first there's independence. If we read that part of the story, we would see the serpent's tempting Eve, and Eve's decision to eat of that tree is a unilateral decision. She's independent. She acts unilaterally. I'm not saying she had to get permission from her husband, but this is a pretty big decision, whether or not to take the whole human race into this thing called the fall, whether or not to disobey God, the one commandment he had given them to not eat of this tree. And she does it on her own. And then there's role reversal. Genesis 3.17, look at that verse where God says to Adam, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. I think that the listening part is bad, not just the disobedience part, not just that he ate or that he took her advice, it's that he listened rather than led. There's a role reversal. There's also shame. Back up to verse 7, once they first sin. You see there that they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together for a covering. Before they were naked and unashamed, now they're naked and they have things to cover, which, yes, I think means physically they're naked and they're ashamed, and they're ashamed about their nakedness, but it also represents the whole story. Now they're naked, they're vulnerable. Now they have things to cover up, things to hide from each other. And they run. They run from God. When God comes calling, they go hiding. And, and really, they're running from each other, too. We shouldn't think of them running away from God to a place in the garden, and they're holding hands as they run away. Come on. I mean, they're not unified. We see by, by these coverings, we see their nakedness and shame that there's in part a separation from each other. Something's broken with God. The relationship with the spouse is also broken. And so they blame. Genesis 3, verse 12, when God asks the man, what did you do? He said, the woman you gave to me. 
You gave her to me. You made her. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. She did it. You did it. She did it. I didn't do it. The blame game starts. Eve, of course, blames the serpent. It wasn't me. It was the serpent. And and then we see that part of the problem now of sin in marriage is that there are going to be control issues. Look at Genesis 3.16, the second half of it. We won't talk about the first half, about pain and childbirth, but the second half, God says, a curse now on their marriage and marriages to follow. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, what does that mean? Well, we actually get a an interpretive hint, just a a few verses later. Look at Genesis 4, verse 7. Where there, God is talking to Cain, their offspring, and God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Desire, it's one of those words in Genesis 3.16. Its desire is for you, Cain, but you must rule over it. Same two Hebrew words, both in Genesis 3.16 and in 4.7. So, just like Sin, desire to have Cain, to overcome him, overtake him, devour him. But he must get over it. He must rule over it. He must control it. So, now with the fall, Eve's desire would be to control her husband, and he would attempt to rule her, to control her. It's the war of the sexes. It's domination and manipulation so sin has infected and affected everything in God's creation. It was created good. Behold, it was all very good. And that goodness now isn't decimated. It's not obliterated, but it is broken. It's bent. It's crooked. And so marriage is hard. That's why marriages are hard. That's why the divorce rate is what it is. That's why more and more 20-somethings are saying, marriage, what's the point? Isn't that just grandma's institution? Do we really need it today? Things now with vertical brokenness with God have a horizontal effect. That's what Genesis says, but let's now take the lens, let's move Google Earth over to the book of Colossians. It's Google Bible. Move over to Colossians, zoom in, but don't go to a verse. Just let's zoom in on the whole book for now. And let's talk about God's plan for restoration. And I know we skipped a lot, right? We went from Genesis 3 to Colossians. There's a lot there that we skipped. But in some ways, we can see where the story went from Genesis 3 to Colossians. If we look at chapter 1 of Colossians, and let's just read a chunk here, starting in verse 13. We'll get some hints about God's plan He's delivered us from the domain of darkness that Adam and Eve entered and we were born into. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, in him we have now redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's the image, the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and are for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, do you see God is intent on a vertical, personal restoration? These are individual people that he's talking to. I mean, he's writing to a church, but they represent individuals. Individuals who have received this grace of Christ and his work upon the cross, his resurrection, victory from the dead. They now find themselves in a church. Now they're a body. They're part of the seedlings of a new creation. Eventually, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven and earth will be one. Eventually, Christ's kingdom will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until then, he's given us the church as a little window into the relationships of Christ's new creation. Not perfectly so. There are plenty of churches with relationship problems. In fact, every church has some. They have them in varying degrees. But but there's something about the church. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 11. Here's what's special. Now there's no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Doesn't matter. Christ is all. Christ is in all. Christ is their identity now. So socioeconomic, political, national, Physical distinctions that would make up parties and groups and sects and cultures are now gone in the church. At least that's what we're aiming for. We're trying to wipe those out. We're trying to, trying to love each other different as we might be. And now Paul has moved to relationships specific. Chapter 3, verse 18. We've seen him now move from God's plan for restoration, vertical restoration with God, individuals right with him, affecting horizontal relationships now. Now there's reconciliation with others. Now there's peace with others. Now there's a new humanity that's made up of every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation. And now... These things get worked out, as he's been doing in chapter 3, with flesh and blood friendships in the church. So, verse 12, as God's chosen people, be holy and beloved, have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. You see how that's all very horizontal. It's all about relationships there. How to get along, how to forgive, how to be like God, like Christ, to these others. And then, verse 18, like I said, it gets specific. So then he'll go through several different foci, you could say, of specific relationships. Wives in verse 18, husbands in verse 19, look down your Bibles, children in verse 20, fathers in verse 21, slaves in verse 22, and then if you skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 1, masters, or if you like, bosses. So now we're ready to take the magnifying glass Zoom in on verse 18 and then zoom in again on verse 19 to talk about husbands and wives. Now, a quick qualification before we do that. I realize you might not be married. So you might be thinking, I'm in the wrong class. 
This isn't for me. This is too not weak, right? I should have brought my iPad. I know. Ah. Well, no, I think the, there's some things here for you. I mean, one, it's God's word. It's always, it's always something we need, right? Every bit of scripture is profitable for reproof and, and correction and instruction and, and for doctrine. But specifically, let me talk about how this applies to you if you're not married. Doesn't it show you what to be and what to become whether or not you marry, whether or not you have marriage in this next year. So some things we'll talk about this morning are distinct about marriage. They're distinctly within that marriage relationship, and you kind of can't do some of these things without a, a spouse. But other things are more general and relate to manhood and womanhood. So if you're single, be looking for those things. Be looking for what the Bible says generally about manhood and womanhood and how it would apply to your single context or divorce context. But it also shows you what to look for in a spouse. Don't the world dictate what to look for in a spouse. Let God's word help you with what to look for in a spouse. And be thinking now what your marriage will look like. Be working on yourself now in preparation for a wedding day and a marriage after that. Be preparing. Be thinking about what you will be like as a husband, what you will want in a wife and vice versa. All right, so now the third thing in your outline. First it was background, second was Colossians. Now third, we zoom in on wives and we see that Paul said, these shocking words in verse 18, shocking in our culture, submit to your husband. Now let's just note that this is his summary instruction for a wife's part in a marriage relationship. I wouldn't have guessed that. I wouldn't have wrote that. He did. By this word submit, he means placing oneself under another. So it has to do with ordering, voluntary ordering. But it's not an order of worth. It's an order of role. It's an order of distinction of of role. What we see in Galatians 3.28, like Colossians 3.11. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. They're all in Christ. They're one in Christ. They have equal access to the Father through Christ. They have all the spiritual blessings that come in Christ. Male, female, slave, free. It doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. Not an order of worth, but an order of role. And so, in that sense, there is something of authority or leadership, submission, and following. These are words that could be used and are used interchangeably in the relevant New Testament passages on husbands and wives in the home and men and women in the church. But one thing we should notice is that everyone is under some authority. Wives are not at all unique, right? Children are under the authority of parents. We as citizens are under the authority of governors. You might not like that, but the Bible insists that we are and insists that we should honor them and pray for them. We submit ourselves to God's word, right? The word submit is used about us submitting to God's word or the Christ Christ church submits itself to Christ. Even Jesus places himself under the Father. 
he does the Father's work. He honors the Father, glorifies the Father. So this word submit is, it's always one way. It's always monodirectional. It never goes both ways. So we never see anything in Scripture about Christ submits himself to the church. Well, no, he serves the church, but it doesn't say Christ submits to the church, the church leads. Or that the word of God somehow submits itself to the church. No, the church submits itself to the word, always going one way. Equal but different roles. We call this a complementarian view of the role relationships of men and women and husbands and wives. Complementarian, as opposed to egalitarian, which would say not only is there equality, there's no distinction, there's no difference, it's the same. Or if there's a difference, it's just person to person, it's the toss-up, what it looks like in any given marriage. The Bible says differently, like it or not. There's a great illustration about this in a big book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, edited by Wayne Grudem and John Piper, probably 20, 25 years ago. It's probably too thick for most of you. It's a little bit academic, but it's, it's helpful on a number of fronts. And one of those is this illustration it uses about which guy is more free. A guy who jumps out of a plane with a parachute or a guy who jumps out of a plane without a parachute. The guy without a parachute feels free at first if he isn't thinking about the fact that he doesn't have a parachute. Right? He has less constraint. The guy with a parachute has 50 extra pounds and maybe skin getting pinched from these shoulder straps. And, but he has a freedom that the guy without a parachute can imagine. Eventually that guy without a parachute is going to realize no parachute felt free for a second and now you are bound. You are anything but free. There's nothing you can do. And so there's a freedom about the guy with the parachute that even though, even though it constrains and even though there's weight, there's purposeful design there. It's there for a purpose. And so he's more free. He's more happy. It's a better ride, you could say. John Piper also has a new book, uh, newer, newish, called This Momentary Marriage. In it, he gives... Six things that submission is not. Let me just list them. He says, submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. He says, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. He says, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. Christ is the the Lord. He's the supreme husband. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Yes, the Bible speaks in terms of a husband being a spiritual leader to his wife, but it's right. A wife cannot primarily get her spiritual strength through her husband. That comes directly from Christ and the Spirit. And finally, he says, submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of fear. And I totally agree with these, and we could add more qualifications to this list, right? We could say, here are things that submission is not. 
I mean, there are many people in here, no doubt, who've seen some abuses or horrible distortion to God's design, all done in the name of biblical submission and biblical headship, right? You've seen guys be jerks or even physically abusive in the name of taking the lead. Now, that's wrong, so we need those qualifications. But as soon as we start to have something of a biblical understanding of what submission is, We also need to notice that the passages, like Colossians 3.18, don't give a lot of qualification about when, under what circumstances, under which conditions you're supposed to submit to your husband. It doesn't say some ladies are supposed to submit to their husbands. It's addressed to all Christian ladies. It doesn't say if, if he's like this. And not like that. Elizabeth Elliot says, these passages do not have footnotes. Like, submit to him if, footnote, he's a very capable leader. If he's a better leader than you, then submit. Otherwise, no. It doesn't say, submit to him if he's smarter than you. But if you've got 10 IQ points on him, you don't have to, and you shouldn't. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say submit to him if he's more godly than you, or if he's more emotionally mature than you, or if he's more self-controlled than you, or if he's more respectable than you. In fact, listen to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 gives some similar and elaborate advice it says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. And I think that this applies to saved husbands who are disobedient, disobedient about a specific thing. They're not obeying God's word on this thing, this time, maybe even for this season. Or it can mean, and it can mean, those husbands who aren't saved. They're not in Christ. They don't ever submit themselves to God's word. But subject yourself to your own husbands, even if they don't obey the word, so that they may be one without a word. There's gospel power in this thing called submission. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, that's another way of describing this Submission, respectful, pure conduct. Or another way of putting it is, it's like letting your adorning not just be external. And then it gives a list here, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing. Those aren't bad things in and of themselves, especially the putting on of clothing thing. You're supposed to do that. Some of you might need to do a little bit more of that, in fact. But his point is, don't let your adornment just be external, just be superficial. Let there be an inside beauty that shines forth, an imperishable imperishable beauty of gentleness and a quiet spirit. That's more powerful than any sort of physical seduction or words of persuasion. This is very precious in God's sight. And then look at verse 5 where he says, For this is how the holy women of old hoped in God. 
This is how they used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. This is what they wore. Sarah obeyed Abraham. She even called him Lord. Now, you got to remember, that's old days, right? We, we would say Lord's a bit much even for a, maybe even a president today. And they sure wouldn't back then. And so she calls him Lord, but, but we know that means she followed him. He led her. She submitted herself, her life, and, and sometimes her wants to his. And if you do this, Peter says you are her children, Sarah's children, and you do good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, why did he put that at the end, fear? I think what he's saying here is that submission is trust. Like you would trust the sovereignty of God in a sense, although his sovereignty is perfect, you can always trust it. But it does take trust, right? You have to consciously say, I'm not going to control this. I'm not going to complain about this. Because complaining isn't trust. Controlling isn't trust. In a similar way, wives need to trust both in their husbands and the sovereignty of God, let it go. And unlike the sovereignty of God, their husbands might mess up. But God uses that too. There's trust. Unsubmissiveness, then, we could say, is a form of worry. Don't complain, don't control, submit and trust to the glory of God. One more passage that's worth reading because it it tells us more of what of what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians, uh, in Colossians 3, is Titus 2. We're there in verse, th- verse 3. It says that the older women in the church are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women, here we go, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. And then get this, that the word of God may not be reviled. Do you see how many big, heavy, weighty things are tied to this this issue of the role relationship of husbands and wives in the home and in the church? So submission is honoring a husband in his God-given role. You say, isn't this just cultural though? Isn't Paul just being a cultural guy? Isn't he being descriptive and not prescriptive? Doesn't it say more about the first century in Paul's culture or even Paul's personal beliefs than it does about what we should do as Christians? Let me answer that no in several different ways. This is not Paul just being a chauvinistic representative of his first century Roman slash Jewish culture. Three reasons for that. Number one, the next verse of Colossians 3, verse 19, Paul there says something to the men that was contrary to the ancient Near East cultures. It's not cultural when Paul says to them, love your wives and don't be harsh. That was not a given in the first century. So in Paul's time, most people would have thought verse 18 about a wife's submission is a given. And the shocking thing is what he said in verse 19, that a, woman, uh, that a man can't be harsh to his wife. In our day, we think verse 18 about submission is shocking, and verse 19 is a given. Of course he has to love me. Of course he can't be harsh. 
but we need to also test the other verse and make sure that it's not, it's not first century culture that has put this in the Bible, and it's not our 21st century culture that should take it out. First century culture or 21st century culture isn't the norm. Scriptures are normed. The reformers used to say, it's the norm of norms which cannot be normed. You'd use that a lot if your name was Norm, wouldn't you? A little norm overload there. What they were saying is, Scripture's the norm, and there's nothing else that can come in norm it. Give it a norm, a normal. Scripture tells us what's the norm. Another reason, though, why Paul is not just giving us a cultural picture here in verse 18 is... Other places, when he talks about the role relationship of husbands and wives, he ties it to creation, not culture. So 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2 are two places where he ties this thing he's talking about and teaching here in Colossians 3, ties it to creation. And in creation, you see that there is an order of creation. Adam was created first. There's representation. Adam seems to be the federal representative of the human race. There's primary accountability with Adam. Genesis 3.9, God comes and says to Adam, what have you done? What did you do? God doesn't come and question Eve nearly the same way. Adam named the woman in Genesis 2.23. And we saw that word helper is used for what Adam needs and what God supplies in Eve. There are complementary roles. And then thirdly, there is also another reason why it's not culture that Paul is speaking of in verse 18. It's because marriage is a theological illustration. It's a word picture. It's a demonstration of Christ's love for his people in their submission to him. And I think that's what Paul means in verse 18 when he gives us a reason there. This is fitting in the Lord. Fitting. I think he's giving us a shorter version of what he wrote in Ephesians 5. We turn back to Ephesians 5. Let's read a chunk there. You might remember that when we first started the book of Colossians, I said Paul wrote Ephesians, probably all but sent it off, just as he heard about the Colossian heresy, was concerned, and dashed off this quick letter to the Colossians. And so a lot of the major themes he'd written in Ephesians come across in, in these short forms in Colossians. So here's one of those. In Colossians 3, it says, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Verse 22 of Ephesians 5 gives us the longer version and it shows us what Paul means a little bit more. There he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, quoting from Genesis 2, and cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul comments, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So marriage is in the mind of God from all eternity as to be a living demonstration of intimacy and protection and care and honor and following and submission. Now let's talk about husbands, since we kind of already did by reading Ephesians 5. Bring the lens to verse 19 and put them on husbands. But before you do, notice that verse 18 kind of implied something that husbands should do to lead your wife. Now, I do think it's implied here in Colossians 3 that if the wife is going to submit to her husband, that means some role for him of what Ephesians 5 called head or lead in other passages. Other passages clearly teach this male leadership in the home thing. If he is the head, then he should live as the head. There's something about leadership responsibilities here. Yet, notice, the whole thing that's emphasized in Colossians 3 is not his leadership. It's his what? It's his love and gentleness. It's almost like Paul is saying, guys, you focus on loving and the leading will take care of itself. Don't focus on your wife's need to submit or follow or honor. You've got plenty to keep yourself busy with this small task, love her like Christ loved the church. Right? So you lead by loving, not by lording. You lead by convincing, not by commanding. So if you walk out of here today and You strut your right to command and control when you get home. Instead, go find a bedroom and weep because you don't get what Christ came to do, who he is and how he loves and how he serves and leads. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, said, The woman was made from a rib of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. So headship is never forced, never demanded. It's never self-serving. Its purposes are always sacrifice and service. It rarely, if ever, looks like veto power. It rarely, if ever, looks like a trump card. I mean, I honestly can't think of anything in our marriage where, where we disagreed and I just went, well, who cares? Submit. <laughs> Greek word, hupotasso. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even do a gentler version of that. I, I can't, I mean, it happens very organically and relationally and, you know, frankly, I don't want to move forward if my wife isn't comfortable with it. She's smarter than I am. And I'm smart to know that. Now, on the other hand, headship has to mean something. 
I think it's the God-given role of the husband to be the primary responsibility and directional head for provision, protection, and purity in the home. Provision, protection, and purity. Now, I want to get into something that's situational or anecdotal in there could be a hundred things that I could pick on. A hundred things that I could say, here's a story, and this isn't submission. This isn't love. Here's another story, and boy, this is beautiful headship, submission, love, and care. So I'm going to pick one, but it's just random. Um, Guys, don't emasculate yourself by the way you speak of your wife to other guys. Yes, don't. Don't shame your wife in the way you speak to other guys. Don't call her your woman. Don't don't say the old lady. Okay? But I think actually more common today, here's a a way in which we emasculate ourselves by the way we talk about our wives to other men. We often say, my wife won't let me from the blank. My wife won't let me have a motorcycle. That's always number one. That's, I did a survey. The most common, we, my wife won't let me, is motorcycles. Number two is guns. And number three, no, I, this isn't a real survey that I did. But tattoos seem to be up there too, right? My wife won't let me get a tattoo. Or, you got a tattoo? Your wife let you? Right? That happens. Now, I hear those kind of things often, and I wonder if, We should just word that differently because I I have some things I'm not allowed to do either. I do. But I wouldn't word it that way because it's self-emasculating and my wife wouldn't like me to word it that way. Maybe it should be worded instead like this and I'll use motorcycles. I have a motorcycle. Thanks, honey. Uh, So this isn't me speaking, but someone else. Here's how I think a godly man without a motorcycle who really wants a motorcycle, but his, <laughs> but his wife doesn't like motorcycles. I think is how he should word this to his friends. He should say, motorcycles make my wife nervous, and it wouldn't be loving for me to put her through that. You see how that doesn't sound like you're an eight-year-old? <laughs> and how that doesn't sound like your wife is a witch? Or, my wife isn't a big fan of tattoos, and 1 Corinthians 7 says that this is her body too, and so it's in my best self-interest to let this body be the best body that she can have, if you know what I mean. So, so no tattoos. Okay? Now, you see this kind of stuff, my wife won't let me, she's a witch and he's a wimp in every sitcom today. If they're not single... It's this scenario, a wimp and a witch. So, look, I watch some of those too and laugh, but just make sure you stay sickened by it, not used to it, not calloused, and not starting to slowly imitate it. Lead, but love your wife. Remember those lines from Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love her like Christ loves the church. He loved the church selflessly, servantly, sacrificially, even unto death. He loves his bride securely. It's not changing. He's steady in his love. His mercy is new every day. We read it earlier in this service. 
His love is safe. There's protection. There's provision with our Savior husband. And his love is sanctifying. So it's selfless and sacrificial. It's secure and steady. It's safe and it's sanctifying. And men, just like it doesn't give conditions or qualifications for your wife and her job, it doesn't for you. Husbands are to love their wives not when she's acting lovely, lovely or looking lovely. It doesn't say to not be harsh with her when she's not being harsh to you first. It doesn't say do not be harsh when she's being submissive. It just says, love her and don't be harsh. Don't be harsh with her. John Chrysostom in the 4th century said, Would you have a wife that obeys you as the church loves Christ? Then care for her as Christ does the church. If it be needful that you should give your life for her or be cut into a thousand pieces for her, endure anything whatsoever. Refuse it not. Christ brought his church to his feet by his great love, not by threats or any such thing. And we wrap this up quickly with some quick takeaways. We encourage you to just leave here and think and pray about this some more. Determine to think and pray about this some more. Perhaps that means read a good book on it. Maybe you've never read a good book on what submission and loving headship looks like. There are two books at our resource center that are wonderful. What Did You Expect by Paul Tripp? And another, When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. Those are some of the best. We'll put a blog post up this week with other book recommendations. Go and read. There's nothing more important for you to read than how to live out the picture of Christ and his church in the most intimate, long relationship he's given you. He tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love your neighbor. Who's your closest neighbor? One that bunks with you. Lover, men. Lover. Ask your spouse today how you can better serve him or her, how you can better show love or honor, respect or patience for him or her. Try to find good models in the church, a couple maybe who's a little older, a little wiser than you. Ask them questions, watch them, hang out with them so that you can, you can see what affection looks like and what you, can, you can see what patience looks like. You can see what self-control looks like. Ask for God's help. Look to the gospel alone for help and hope because Jesus died for the sins of your bad marriage. And he's restoring. He's not done yet. Don't give up. Keep fighting. And look to his word for fuel about the goodness and glory of God and his gospel and let that be the means by which you sometimes shut your mouth and sometimes speak love, sometimes lovingly confront, sometimes speak of his word, Sometimes watch things on TV that you don't like. 
Sometimes go to the store when you don't want to. Change diapers that are beyond your gag ability, (laughs) your gag control. Look to serve like love, uh, like serve in love, like Christ's service in love for his church. Let's pray.